Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have a very special guest, a returning guest. His name is Albert Lanier. We talked last month about the strange death of Bobby Fuller in Hollywood. And he is all he's a journalist. He's done a lot of research. And he's covered in the past a story that I'm interested in, a story, a really a pre-internet story, kind of a, people have called it the octopus. There's been a couple of books about this whole story that involves software and the strange death of a guy by the name of Danny Casalero, who died, was found dead in a hotel room in 1991. And it does tie in, there's all kinds of under, you know, deep state would be called deep state type fi uh, figures, Robert Maxwell, John Tower, and it's just uh, the U.S. Department of Justice, and ties in vaguely with uh, a lot of people involved in Iran-Contra, which is how it got the name The Octopus, but uh, Albert can talk more about that. So, Albert, welcome back to the show. It's nice to be back. For people who may not have heard of our earlier interview, can you kind of Talk about your background and then how you became interested in the whole sto story of Inslaw and Promise. Oh, sure. Um, well, I was first on this program to discuss the death of rock star Bobby Fuller. And um, we had a discussion about that, um, examination of that, and uh, some of the lingering questions, because it was a rather odd death. For one reason, you know, Fuller was found in his mother's car. Um, having taken his mother's car previously uh, the night before. And the car was driven back with him in it, with his, basically with his dead body in it. Um, and his body was doused in gasoline. And there wasn't really a proper death investigation, proper investigation done about Bobby Fuller. So I investigated or I talked about not only some of the lingering questions, but the sort of uh, lingering and residual mystery of the Bobby Fuller case. Uh, my background is as a freelance journalist, a print journalist, having written for newspapers and magazines, and as a freelance writer. Uh, I also became a ghostwriter, you know, about 2014 or so. Uh, number of years into my career and I remain a ghostwriter to this day but um, I was a freelance writer and journalist um, largely from 1994 until about 2017 when I retired February 2017 when I retired uh, I wrote for a number of publications among them Honolulu Weekly, Pacific Business News, um, Asian Week um, and Hawaii Magazine um, and uh, numerous other publications. And uh, I wrote a blog for about four years after I retired called, um, well, it was just under my name. It was on medium.com. Uh, and it was about media and um, let's see, current events, current news. So, um, and that brings us basically back up to where we are today. And uh, part of the reason I'm here is I'm promoting my, um, I guess, my official YouTube channel um, because that's the, the <laughs> I think it's one of the few places I haven't really had a presence in as a writer. So um, unfortunately, when you're a writer, I still remain a writer, even though I'm retired as a journalist and a freelancer. 
you know, as a writer, you got to market and promote yourself, which I'm not a fan of, but it's part of the part of whatever trade you're in as a writer. So um, you can um, I just started uh, my official YouTube channel. It's known as Writer Albert Lanier. And that's, again, part of the reason I'm here. The other part, of course, is to talk about not only Danny Casolero, who himself was a freelance writer, but also um, the Inslaw and the Octopus, as I call it. I call it Inslaw Octopus. And I will say, incidentally, I wrote a piece about uh, Inslaw and Octopus for my blog. Um, it, it was called Labyrinth. So I hope that uh, fills people in a bit as to who I am and what I'm talking about. Gotcha. And where does it all start? Where did the whole Inslaw, Inslaw promise octopus, where did it go begin? Okay. So why don't we start then with promise? You know, for those who are unfamiliar with promise, since that, if we're looking at Danny Casolaro, that was essentially what led him or eventually led him into what was known as the octopus, right? Get into a little later. <laughs> so PROMIS stands for Prosecutor Management Information System. Now, essentially what PROMIS was designed as or basically designed and marketed as was case management information. Now, I have to confess, I'm not a tech guy, so I'll do the best I can here. I'm sure that people who are better at technology than I am and better with computers and software and hardware and all that. But um, so forgive me if I am, do not sound like a tech geek or tech guy as I talk about a little of this at times. Um, now, basically, as I mentioned before, PROMIS, Proje uh, Prosecutor's Management Information System, was kind of designed as case management information, basically for US attorneys or federal prosecutors offices. It was um, part of a contract with the DOJ, Department of Justice, Federal Department of Justice. Now, PROMIS was designed and created by a man named William Hamilton. Now, Hamilton himself had a background initially um, working, I believe, as a contractor. Uh, he was, I think, from the research that I looked up, what I looked up about him, Hamilton had initially, or at some point, had been working on listening posts in Vietnam that were used to keep track of uh, North Vietnamese, Viet Cong. And so uh, he was hired, I think, as a full-scale NSA employee. I think he may have been a contractor at one point, but he was hired by an NSA. He was a former employee of the NSA, NSA being the National, um, National Security Agency. Uh, uh, basically, uh, well, I don't know if I should note the, um, the, what they were, the nickname for the NSA was, which was no such agency. Um, but the NSA is what I would call a surveillance agency, right? Known for their, uh, known for their computer systems, uh, they're, they're important, I think, in, also in light of um, uh, Edward Snowden, right? Because he was a contractor. So that's Promise very was the forerunner. Promise was the forerunner of the NSA's prism. So going back right. into the 80s and 90s and, right now. Right. And it was a forerunner of a lot of other systems, I would say. 
promise was essentially breakthrough, but you wouldn't have thought that from its initial package, because again, and I have to stress this, it was supposed to be used as case management in, uh, software. That's what it was technically designed for. Now, Hamilton himself, employee for NSA, he comes up with the idea, a concept for Promise. And initially, and here's where I'll try to break this down a bit. There essentially were two, I think there were two kinds of Promise, right? There was the initial Promise software that was developed uh, under the auspices of the NSA, right? Now this was funded and uh, supported by a grant from the LEAA, which is Law Enforcement Assistance Administration. Uh, this was kind of a program that uh, assisted and helped, um, I think it was affiliated with the DOJ. This came up, I think during the Carter administration, the seventies. Now the LEAA, eventually got uh, rescinded by Congress. So what happened was that Hamilton ended up buying a company called Inslaw, right? Mm -hmm. And the Institute, uh, Inslaw being the um, Institute for I think it's Social Law and Research. And he got he, I think he bought that in the early 80s, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so it was in the early 80s. And what he was looking to do was work on a more advanced version of Promise, which was known as Enhanced Promise. So let's break that down the initial version that he was working on, let's call that primary promise, right? The second version was enhanced promise. And what this was going to be part of was is going to, he was going to use Inslaw and was setting that up as a company for which he would market and license and sell promise software, right? The enhanced promise. Mm -hmm. So essentially, he was departing from the NSA. He was involved with um, he was involved with his company, uh, is going to be Inslaw, um, and he was going to be involved in taking his software and essentially making this enhanced promise proprietary software. Now, notice before I stated that. Promise was developed under the auspices of the federal government. So while he was still an employee with the NSA. Okay. Now, clearly, I'm sure that it could be argued, not just by me, but by others, that the government was not happy or that there were people in the government that were not, not happy with the situation. One, because this was uh, set up while Hamilton was still an employee of the federal government. And now he was doing, which is not unusual when you look at a lot of, I would say, a lot of products that you see were developed in the public sector and then had applications 
uh, the technology or the basic application, uh, basic aspects were used as products, right? Now, I think something that's brought out seems silly, but it's brought out is like Tang, for instance. Tang, I think, was developed for astronauts, I believe. You're um, right. That's what and that later that later became a um, you know commercial marketed beverage. So, so he was taking this advanced, I'm sorry, um, enhanced promise, and he was going to sell it under the auspices and license it on the auspices of Insla, right? And what Hamilton decided to do was conduct a contract with the Department of Justice. And so the Department of Justice became the early client for Inslaw and obviously for the Promise software. And mm -hmm. the application in selling this to the federal government, and specifically the DOJ, was to, again, U.S. attorneys' offices, federal prosecutors' offices, to help with their management of cases. Right? Right. Right. So there was a contract, as I mentioned, that was conducted. And the contract was supposed to be a three-year contract. Um, from what I understand, about $10 million. Hamilton and Inslaw were paid the first installment. I think it probably was maybe over, I'm trying to remember. Um, it was $10 million. I think it may have been over $3 million per installment. Um, the first installment was paid. But then... no further monies were paid to the Hamiltons and were paid to Inslaw. And so this became a problem because the Hamiltons ended up getting stiffed by the federal government. And essentially what happened was that the federal government, and this was later brought out, what happened was that the Hamiltons were forced into bankruptcy because, you know, they had a client that had stiffed them on their contract and the client wasn't paying. Right. And so they're trying to, you know, market their software and they're trying to get this software. Now, let me just go back a little and talk about why Promise was significant, why it was important. Uh, because I think that's important to know. Um, at that point, when Hamilton was developing the Promise software in the 70s, about mid-70s or late 70s and early 80s, what you had in regards to computer databases were databases that could not really interface or interact with each other. So from what I understand, if you had a specific computer database in a government agency or for a company, that database could be used by whatever employees or whatever workers could tap 
been to it. But you couldn't use that database to interact with any other database. So if you are, say, working for, I don't know what it would be, the IRS, you can't go and use your database to go and look up aspects related to, I don't know what it would be, the FBI. or other kinds of databases. So the databases were databases were basically standalone. And again, I'm not a tech guy. I'm trying right. to- well, This is before the internet. These are before the right. whole connectivity. This is mid, early, 80s, early to mid 80s. Mm -hmm. So there was no connectivity. There was no interfacing. There was no interactivity between databases. And so that was kind of an issue. So what needed to be developed were, I believe the term is relational databases. And so you had companies that were trying to relational databases, that is databases that could interface and interact with other databases. Um, what Promise represented and what Promise was, it turned out to be the best relational database available. And the reason this was the case was not only could it, as per case management information software, take cases and file them away neatly and, you know, allow for people access to information, go to a file, look up the file, see it. But once it was worked on, once it was tinkered with, once it was reconfigured, Promise could there become very powerful software. And this is where it gets, it got, I mean, this is where it got interesting. And this was the reason why not only the federal government, but other kinds of governments and their intelligence agencies were interested in Promise. Once you could reconfigure Promise, you could use it to basically have software that could track individuals, that could track accounts like bank accounts, that could track other kinds of items. Very powerful when you're talking about, again, late 70s, early 80s. And as you mentioned before, the fact there was no internet. I mean, you had DARPA and you had the internet that was being developed, but you didn't have an internet that had any public use or commercial use, and it wasn't available. And again, what computers could do in regards to databases were limited because they couldn't interact. No interactivity, no interfacing between this database and that database and this system and that system. Okay. So what, what was Promise, what happened with Promise and Inslaw? Inslaw thought that somebody stole their software, right? The DOJ? Right. Well, in essence, that's what essentially happened. As I mentioned before, the Hamiltons ended up being bankrupt. The company ended up bankrupt. So, <coughs> excuse me. Um, what occurred was that they ended up in 
U.S. bankruptcy court. Because what Hamilton basically, what Hamilton did was file a lawsuit against the DOJ. And the case went to federal bankruptcy court in 1987. And a judge by the name of George Basin ruled against the Department of Justice. And for him, and he was interviewed on, um, and people can look up the interview. He was interviewed on uh, um, the Australian program, A Current Affair. They did a segment about the Promise software and I think the death of Casalero, not so much the octopus, but the death of Casalero and Promise, primarily Promise. And so Basin was interviewed on that program and people should check it out if they wanna see him being interviewed. But Basin noted, I believe in his decision that Promise was obtained, that Promise was basically obtained, I would call snatched and stolen, but obtained through quote, trickery, fraud and deceit. Those are the words that were used. And I think for Basin, it was pretty clear based on, I believe it was the evidence at hand, not only what employees I think were saying, but also what documents, what, what some of the documents that he was able to ascertain or look at. So unfortunately what happened after that is the Court of Appeals in DC reversed the case. So what happened is that Basin had awarded, um, I think it was anywhere between that I've seen about 6.8 or about 8 million. I, I, I've heard 8 million, but um, I've also seen 6.8 million. So I'll just say six to $8 million in damages to the Hamiltons, right? Unfortunately, the Court of Appeals in DC reversed the decision. And I believe the decision was reversed because of a legal technicality. I think they argued that the, the bankruptcy court did not have jurisdiction to hear the case, which strikes me as interesting considering that it went to trial and the court ruled, but yeah, they won. I Basically, that was the decision. Yes, in the bankruptcy court. And then they, they, they had the case reversed by the DC Court of Appeals. Um, I mean, it's one of a number of things, I would call it reversal of fortune. That's a good way to put it. But I would say it's one of the aspects of reversal of fortune in this, how do I put this? saga no it's a saga in this sad yeah so what happened next i mean so how does how does casalaro tie into this whole scheme okay what happened with promise okay so what happened was that casalaro casalaro himself his background was a, he, I think he's originally from Virginia and Casalero was someone who was interested in writing. You know, that was his interest. I think literature to a certain extent, but writing. He was basically a college dropout. And Casalero himself wound up getting involved in um, computers. He 
owned a computer publication. I believe, let me make sure that I have the right name of it, but. Um, yeah, he, he went through a variety of, somebody said that he was even a poet, like in one of the articles that I read today, but he eventually ended up owning a computer company, like a, not a computer, but a computer magazine or something. Right. Yeah, he owned a very, he owned a computer publication very early on. You're talking about early on in the 80s. And I think computer he ended up age. selling that publication because he ended up getting back into writing. He became freelancer and he ended up getting into freelance journalism. Um, and so he ended up getting back into writing. Um, now, I actually wanted to ask you a little something. Uh, if you don't mind my if you don't mind no you had mentioned that you had read a couple articles about Castellaro. um what what's your take on Castellaro? because i don't know i know you're interested in this murder, affair, murder. what was he your was murdered he was murdered in a hotel room over something okay. in martinsburg well, it really isn't that far outside of dc it's probably a very good place uh, people get killed outside of D.C. all the time. I lived there for three years. So I think that he, somebody, he was finding something sensitive. And I think they probably warned him to go away and he didn't. Because uh, he supposedly committed suicide by cutting his wrist like 15 times on each wrist. It's very unmale too, which is weird. Mm -hmm. Well, I was, actually, I was curious of what you thought of him as a person. Because you were telling me a little about the article that you read. So I'm just curious about that. He was probably just a journalist looking for stories, just like anybody else. He probably wrote other stories, and then he realized this is a fascinating story with a lot of different things going on because there's interesting characters, Reconosciuto, there was the Cabazon Indians, so you had kind of like another jurisdiction. You had Wackenhut. You there and there was I can't there was another guy whose name escapes me now, very kind of suspicious character. So you, there's definitely like an underworld that he was looking into. So, what did you think about him? Well, my impression of Castellaro was that he was a guy. He struck me as a guy who, not so much was out of his depth. But I don't think he understood what he was dealing with. And I, I don't know that I've ever talked about him as a person when the couple of times I've been interviewed about him. But I, I, I never got the sense that he, I think he, I mean, he understood. He had death threats against him. And he knew that. He told his brother that. Because his brother was a doctor, I think he had. His, I think his father and his brother were both doctors, both physicians. Um, and he had told his brother, according to what his brother had stated, that uh, you know I've been getting death threats and people don't people want me to get away from this subject and move away and not mess with it. And so he clearly understood, I think, the ramifications of working on. Not so much the promise affair, but what what he termed the octopus. I think he understood it. I think he got it. But I don't know that he was able to see it in the larger context. That's my that's my impression of it. That's my impression. I think he he, he struck me as a well-meaning writer, but he was he was in 
I think he was involved in a situation that was way out of his depth, I think. And I think he did yeah. a good job, but I think he was way out of his depth. I, and I don't mean that. I got That's why I was hesitant to say that, because I'm not trying to put down Danny, who I have respect for. That's part of the reason I agreed to be interviewed about him. But, um, but I do feel he was out of his depth to a certain extent. I don't think he re realized the extent of how deep this went. And to be fair, I think a number of people in his position might not have either. To be fair with you. Right. But I mean, his, his research didn't just pertain to Inslaw promise and these things, he had a much broader, wider thing. He was looking into former CIA officers, arms dealers. So he had gone, he really, this was almost like an entryway into the underworld, which still exists to this day, but it was, it was. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, you're right. It was a gate. What happened was that the Promise Affair and the Inslaw case, were gateways to what I would say was the octopus for Danny Casalero. It brought him into all of these threads relating to government, to some extent organized crime, to some extent intelligence operatives and operations. Um, and it really became, he really became enmeshed and I think that's why he was trying, in my view, he was trying to understand this rather complex web. I mean, he called it the octopus. I call it the web. Because that's what I think it was. This strand here, that strand there, that strand there, that strand there. And unfortunately, someone came along and just destroyed the web with him in it. Right. I mean, he was talking to that guy, Rikonoshuto, right? Can you talk about Michael right. Rikonoshuto? Do you know about him? Yes. Yes, Michael Rikonoshuto. If you look into this, uh, you look into this um, case, you can't help but talk about Rikonoshuto or know a little about him. From my understanding, Rikonoshuto was like a kind of technical scientific prodigy when he was a kid, like very <laughs> highly intelligent. Um, now, the reason why Rikonoshuto or Michael Rikonoshuto is mentioned in regards to Promise is what happened was, as I mentioned before, the Hamiltons were, had taken the federal government, the DOJ to court. They won the case, but they lost in terms of appeals, right? What happened was that the House Judiciary Committee um, under the leadership of Democrat Jack Brooks, started looking into um, the Promise software affair or the Promise affair and into Inslaw. In fact, in 1992, they conducted hearings. Jack Brooks's Judiciary Committee had conducted hearings on what was termed uh, for what I'm reading here, sorry, I'm looking at some notes. I hope you don't mind. Um, no, good. 
the Inslaw affair, to state it directly. Right. Um, and so Jack Brooks was the chair. Now, I think with the Judiciary Committee, they had, Brooks had conducted like a three-year investigation into Inslaw. And so when I first started looking into Inslaw and Promise and the Octopus, one of the things that I read was the hearing report, uh, the report of the hearings, the Judiciary Committee report on the Inslaw affair. So that I had read years ago. I think I may have looked at it maybe a few years, years ago as well. But that was part of my initial research when I looked into Inslaw. Um, so what happened was they were holding these hearings and Reconosciuto had contacted Hamilton and asked to be, you know, and, and informed him of what was going on. Now, basically where Reconosciuto comes in is this. Reconosciuto was supposedly hired to take the promise software. So let's go back a little. We know that the Hamiltons were screwed out of payment for the promise software. Why is that the case? Because the DOJ wanted the software. The NSA was interested in it as well, but the federal government in general was interested in the software, right? And we're talking the early eighties here, right? So this is under the auspices of the Reagan administration. And anybody who's looked into any aspect of the Reagan administration knows that that administration was an administration of operatives and operators in my view. Or as George Carlin, uh, George Carlin put it once in his um, stand-up routine, Ronald Reagan and his criminal gang. So this was under the auspices of the Reagan administration. Essentially, again, if we look at what George, uh, Judge Basin had stated in the federal bankruptcy court hearing, promise was essentially stolen from the Hamiltons through trickery, fraud, and deceit. And so if we're aware of that, what the DOJ and the federal government in general were doing was essentially pirating and using promise for themselves. And what's more important, as we'll also get into, is that they were looking to sell the software to other countries, primarily to intelligence agencies. Okay, and then what happens next? Okay, so Ricardo Shudo, we then enter Ricardo Shudo. He contacts the Hamiltons when you have these judiciary hearings that are going to come up in 1992, right? And Ricardo Shudo tells the Hamiltons, meaning William Hamilton and his wife Nancy, who were the owners of Inslaw. What Ricardo Shudo tells them is that he was hired to modify the Promise software. Now, what this basically consisted of was taking the software and installing what was known as a backdoor routine. I believe it would be password protected. So this backward would allow anyone with the right code to then access the software and read what was in the files of the software. 
and what's in the body of the program. Rakanashudo stated he had done this on Cabazon Indian Reservation land and at the Cabazon Indian Reservation in Indio, California. That's like the, I believe that's the Coachella Valley. Right. They have that music festival there, Coachella. So that is what Rakanashudo had stated in terms of his involvement. He was hired to modify the software and to install this backdoor and to install, which would allow access to every part of Chromis. Now, why is this significant? Well, because once you alter, as I mentioned before about Chromis, if you alter the software, if you use it in a certain way, you can use it to track various kinds of people, accounts, items, all kinds of things, right? That was the importance of Chromis, that this was maybe designed as case management information, but because it would technically be software that could interface with other databases, and it was relational software that worked, it was really important because it was a breakthrough piece of software. It was a breakthrough computer product. So, okay, and then what happened? <clears throat> all right. So Reconoshuto agrees to state, you know, all this in an affidavit and have his affidavit be part of the investigation. I'm not quite sure. I don't recall whether he was going to testify or not, but he certainly did uh, file an affidavit or write an affidavit. Now, what happened was the Reconoshuto then ended up being arrested. Uh, not only arrested, but convicted eventually on charges of, I believe it's creating and distributing methamphetamine. So basically, he was arrested by authorities, by federal authorities, police federal authorities, and he was put in, eventually put in prison. <laughs> so you have Reconoshuto, whose importance is that he modified, changed the software on Cabazon Indian Reservation in Indio, California. The reason it was done there was because as a reservation, it would be sovereign territory, sovereign land outside the purview of the federal government. Now you have Reconoshuto who made an affidavit and was, and was doing this, I guess, to help the Hamiltons. He's now out of the way. So that's another thing that goes wrong when we look at, you know, Promise, Inslaw, Octopus. Again, we look at the Hamiltons, they're screwed out of payments by the DOJ and federal government. They end up in bankruptcy. They have to file suit. We see Reconoshuto, who says he was involved in modifying the software and in doing that on sovereign territory and, and changing changing aspects of the software for its use, what eventually became its sales use. Um, and he ends up being arrested and put in prison. So 
things seem to go wrong when it when it comes to Inslaw, Promise, and the octopus, it seems. Right, so there's a, all problems with the octopus, but the Cazolaro's dead. But it, they, there was an inquest into his death through the government, right? Mm -hmm. Right. So that's that's great, eventually. Now, let me just get to the death of Danny Casolaro. Now, as I mentioned before, Danny had, he was a guy that had a computer publication. He is the owner of a computer publication. And he ended up selling that. So he had a background in regards to computers, right? Interest in it, at least. Um, and he ended up getting wind of the insulin affair, right? He ended up hearing about it. I think he'd probably been tipped about it, tipped off about it. And so he started uh, reporting on and doing work investigating insulin affair, right? And right. what it eventually happened was in looking at Inslaw, he started looking at other aspects. For example, when you look at Promis, um, the scuttlebutt is, or the belief is that Promis was sold to, for example, Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Now, I'm sure you're familiar with BCCI. That was a major scandal in the 1990s. Um, yes, and, I've done a show on that. I've done a show on BCCI. Right, right. And so you, what Casolaro ended up getting into were all, it's what I call aspects of the web, right? This strand goes here, that strand goes there, that strand goes there. So he ended up finding out about what he termed to be the octopus. That was his name for it. The octopus was ostensibly this organization, basically a former intelligence operative, former members of intel agencies. That was essentially what the octopus was. Or I would say even to this day may possibly still be. So he started moving from just investigating and looking into Inslaw into what became all the other permutations of the octopus. And so the octopus was this organization that was involved ostensibly in all kinds of shadowy and covert operations in various countries. Um, And so what you're seeing is this progression from Casolero. He's investigating what's going on with Inslaw. He's seeing what's going on with his computer theft. And that gets him involved in investigating other aspects. And he eventually gets to the octopus. And so what happens is he gets more and more interested in the octopus. In fact, uh, he was going to write this as a novel. I believe he was going to write it as a novel. Um, he certainly put in a, um, I think he had tried, uh, what is that, selling it as a, a novel to a publisher. I think it was Little Brown. Um, but he tried certainly, I think it was called Behold the Pale Horse. And some of the aspects, 
some of the strands of this were, I think, talked about in a book publication or a book proposal. And that didn't really go anywhere. But Casalero was looking to write a book about this, from my understanding. And what happened was he ended up in Martinsburg, West Virginia in 1991. And he was at a... Uh, Hotel in Mark, West Virginia. I believe it, it was called, it was the Sheraton Hotel. And that was unfortunately where he was found dead. Uh, his wrists had been slashed anywhere from, for about a dozen times. Several slashes on one wrist and arm and several slashes on another. Now, why is this significant? Because Casalero himself was very, very squeamish when it came to blood. He was somebody who did not uh, want to even get a blood test. That is what his uh, relatives, his family members have said. So he was somebody who just didn't want to be around the sight of blood, I think, let alone have any blood taken from him. So... It stands to reason that if you're squeamish, if you're somebody who can't really deal with blood, why would you choose a way of committing suicide that involves bleeding? And not only that, but bleeding to death. It's not logical. Um, it certainly doesn't make any coherent, rational sense. But unfortunately, when it comes to a number of deaths in this country, coherent and rational are not terms that are often applied or used. So it's very unfortunate. So he was found in this, in this Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Now, Martinsburg, West Virginia is outside of DC. And um, I had been interviewed on a show, oh, about a decade ago. And I was told that Martinsburg has a number of branches or offices of federal agencies, if I'm not mistaken. At least that's what I was told. Uh, now, from what I understand, Casalero was there to see someone at an IRS center. And he was there looking to get copies of hard copy uh, data that he could use in his case. Uh, he had also supposedly met with a William Turner, who was a, uh, someone who had worked, I believe, for a defense contractor. And they had met. And then you have a kind of, uh, according to, I believe it's a waitress in the hotel, Casalero was seen with a man of, got to be careful here, um, a man who was said to be of uh, Arab persuasion. And we don't really hear much about that aspect, but that was one of the aspects that was stated about Casalero not long before he was found dead. So Casalero was there for a couple of days. He was there in Martinsburg, West Virginia. But yeah, when it comes to his death, the first suspicious aspect is that his wrists were slashed about a dozen times, that his arm was slashed, right? Again, man was reportedly squeamish about blood, afraid of blood, didn't want anything to do with blood according to his family and his relatives. Yet this is what he's found. He's found slash wrists, slashed arms, and he's found also in the bathroom of his room 
in a tub of bloody water. Now, again, here we have a guy who, again, afraid of blood, but he's going to not only slash his wrist and his arms, but be in a tub of water filled with blood. And supposedly uh, beneath, he was found, I think there had been a liner underneath him. There was a razor blade. I think there were a couple of beer cans or something that was found in that tub as well. So when you look at the situation in regards to the crime scene, and I'll call it a crime scene because I believe he was murdered. You look at these details, they don't really add up as a suicide. There were also reportedly bloody towels that were found on the floor of the bathroom. Again, bloody, bloody towels. So again, let's try to use some logic here. Casalero is going to commit suicide, right? Right. He's going to use a razor blade or some such blade, slash his arms several times, slash his wrist several times. Now, also, it should also be noted, I believe this was the coroner's report. It was noted that he not only slashed his wrist, slashed his arm, but he slashed it down beneath the dermis and supposedly hit the tendon. So we're talking about something that was a very solid slash. We're not talking about something that was a hesitation. My understanding when people try to commit suicide by slitting wrist, there are hesitation marks, right? These weren't hesitation mm -hmm. marks. They seem to be devastation marks, meaning they wanted to kill Casalero. And when you add all this up, none of it really seems to make sense. A guy who's squeamish about blood, but he decides to slash his wrists. A guy who's afraid, not very comfortable in terms of blood, but he's going to be found in the tub of bloody water. A guy who is certainly finds blood distasteful, but there are going to be bloody towels found on the floor of the bathroom. None of this adds up. There was also ostensibly, there was also a suicide note. There was a note left behind. But again, the style of the note didn't seem like that of Casalero, who friends say was very, uh, very lit more literary in terms of his writing or his writing, not so much writing style, but in terms of his uh, writing in aspects of writing. That seemed rather flat. I mean, when you look at this stuff, stating that this guy was the victim of suicide makes no sense. It's ridiculous. Oh, I should also note that after the body was uh, taken from the room, it was, um, it was transported to a funeral home where he was embalmed. So, and he was also embalmed without his family's knowledge and approval. Right. They didn't find out about, what, two or three days afterwards when his brother had called to uh, find out about what had happened to his brother. He was told that they had already embalmed the body. I mean, again, you have to wonder, why would authorities there or anyone there decide to go and embalm a body so fast? Why would that be necessary in a random, I'll say, quote, 
random, straightforward suicide. Why? It, I mean, when you think about this, it doesn't add up. None of these details add up. Right, doesn't add up. And all of his notes, Council Laro's notes are all on archive.org if people want to check them out. You can actually see, follow his leads and his notebook and his scribblings and all that stuff. <clears throat> of course, the notes he took with him are gone. He took notes with him to the hotel because, right. uh, you, know, you know, he took notes when he was there in Martinsburg. Those are gone. Whatever William Turner gave him, if Turner had given him any documents, those are gone. You know, again, you look up all of these aspects and you look at these, you can only conclude this man was murdered. But what's the story? The story is that this was, oh, a suicide. That's what it was seen as at the time. Straightforward suicide. Right. And there's pictures of his cuts on his arm, and right. they look fake. I mean, if those pictures are accurate. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, I mean, I, if ever a death, and what was interesting about it is, you know, when I was doing my research into this, you know, his death was reported on by the New York Times by the Washington by, oh, sorry, um, by Newsweek. <laughs> you know, Casalero was not famous. He was not, not well known. He was a kind of very, how do I put this? He was rather obscure freelance writer and I guess freelance journalist. So the New York Times does an article August 17th 1991, because he had died, I believe it was August 10th, 1991. New York Times does an article, August 17, 1991. Their headline is, reporter is buried amid questions over his pursuit of conspiracy idea. Newsweek, when they looked at it, this is a written, this is a quote staff article right? No specific byline to this article. This, this came out, let's see here. It's, it's, uh, August 25th. Their headline, a victim of the octopus. So let's take a little look at what they thought. So, you know, I've told you what the details and I've told people out there, what are the details in regards to the death of Danny Castillo? And people can look up this themselves by looking up, for example, they can get some of the details, basic details. For example, um, you know, I came across this, uh, uh, this case many, many years ago by watching Unsolved Mysteries. It was the same thing with uh, the death of um, Bobby Fuller. And this is where I first heard about this. And so again, planted a seed in my mind. And so later on, I got interested. I started digging up a little and doing research. Um, so I know one saw Mysteries. Uh, they did a, a decent job in looking into Danny Casalero. Um, and if people want to get some basics about it, they can look up that uh, episode. I know there are episodes of Unsolved Mysteries on YouTube. 
uh, I think, standalone episodes. So if they want to get a little bit, little taste of it, they can look that up. Um, but New York Times headline is, reporter is buried amid questions over his pursuit of conspiracy ideas. So for them, the octopus and what was going on was a conspiracy idea. Well, Promise was not a conspiracy idea. It was a software that was modified and it worked. It was not a conspiracy idea. What happened to the Hamiltons, having their contract basically voided and invalidated and not getting the rest of their money and being forced into bankruptcy was not a conspiracy idea. Now, you could argue about the octopus as Danny Casalero called it. But we know even if you're a fair, even if you're a person that is not given into quote unquote conspiracy ideas, nice sure as hell, hell I'm not. Even you would have to, even people would have to contend, at least reasonable people would have to contend that there are very murky and nebulous uh, aspects of in the intelligence world, of law enforcement, um, of aspects of government interacting with criminal, criminal personalities, with opportunists, with all kinds of other people. This exists. This kind of shadow world exists. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, so conspiracy idea. But it, yeah, almost applying the term conspiracy to this case isn't, it's not an accurate term. It's really uncovering this kind of uh, global underworld. BCCI was real, um, backdoor right. software is real, hidden secret payments are real, bribes, things like that. That's really, if you look at his notes, it's like somebody just looking into those darker parts, this underworld of, uh, the world at that time and he's seeing connections so he's seeing connections between above board legit places like the cabazon indians were just a, a reservation somebody was using them though for dark purposes whack and hut clearly had you know a, a hidden hand to it so uh, those are those are those are just things that are truths you know, you know that's a very good way of responding to this. And I like that you put it that way because applying the term conspiracy in this context, it waters down, it dilutes, it also insults. And I think the whole point is to get people away from what has gone on in regards to these aspects, right? to get their minds away from this nebulous sphere, this sort of shadowy world, all of these elements. The, this is, these are spheres in which the public, which the general, general overall citizens, the average Joe, so to speak, don't like that term, but the average person, the average man and woman, this is all these spheres and all of these dark places are places where certain entities and certain certain um, 
power centers, I would call them, don't want people to go or don't want people to know. Right. And I like the way that right. you put that. I really like the way that you put that. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it's just those things happen. They don't want some independent journalist exposing it. And uh, so, I mean, you can look at Edward Snowden. He knows all the darker, or it's just supposedly does. But a lot of these whistleblowers uh, know some of the deeper secrets that some of these powers don't want exposed. So that's not that surprising. Um, is there anything you'd like no. to add? Word about an hour. I mean, okay. What, uh, is there anything else to to add to this or finish it up or? Oh, there's plenty to add. <laughs> like what? Um, well, you know, you know, I talked about the octopus, right? And that it's that Casalero believed it was this organization, the shadowy organization of former intelligence operatives, former uh, people involved in alphabet agencies as the um, now, one aspect of the promise affair that I guess should be noted um, has to do with um, a guy by the name of Robert Maxwell, right? Now, Robert Maxwell was a press baron. He was a man who had bought the um, Daily Mirror in about 1984 or so, in the 80s. And he was someone that got involved in Promise. Um, and that's been one of the, I don't call this a rabbit hole or a series of rabbit holes. I actually call it, how do I put this? I call it the catacomb. All of these dark subterranean tunnels, which unfortunately have a lot of, a lot of fatalities involved. So when you talk about for example, what has gone on with aspects of Inslaw and Promis and the octopus, you're, you're talking about a lot of deaths associated with it. And this is where the danger in this subject comes up. You know, there have been a lot of people that were involved. And that's just why I said things seem to go wrong. Things seem to go wrong for the Hamiltons. Things seem to go wrong for Reconnaissance. Not to mention those people that were helping Reconnaissance. He had an attorney that died. He had, um, I believe it was someone helping out with uh, Reconnaissance's case, die. I mean, the list of people that were found either dead of, quote, suicide or murder is significant and lengthy. And that's one of the disturbing elements when you look at what has gone on with this. I mean, that this is, again, I use the term dark, I use the term catacombs, right? That's mm -hmm. deliberate because from what I understand in the Paris catacombs, these were tunnels and parts of the city that were built over eventually, but that date back centuries, I believe. I believe there's a part of the catacombs where there are a bunch of skulls piled up. That's why I call this the catacombs because of the amount of deaths associated with this um, and the issues. 
that are associated with this. Um, so I did want to get into this because I know this was something you were interested in. Um, yeah, if you know more information about Maxwell, go ahead and share it. Okay. Um, well, Maxwell was, a, you know, he's one of those permutations in regards to the promise aspect. Now, as I mentioned before, promise was basically, I'll be polite and say, obtained by the federal government, right? And what happened with the federal government was there was a guy, I talked about Rikonoshudo. There was a guy by the name of Earl Bryan. He was a doctor. He had been a part of Ronald Reagan's kitchen cabinet in California when Ronald Reagan was governor of California. He had been the, I believe was the direct director of health in California, I guess in the 60s or 70s. And so Earl Bryan was reportedly involved with the Reagan-Bush campaign and the whole October surprise affair. <laughs> now, people don't know what October surprise is. To boil it down, it's essentially the belief by the Reagan-Bush campaign that if Jimmy Carter, who they were running against, Democrat Jimmy Carter, if he was able to get hostages, which were being held in Iran, these were former employees of the American embassy in Iran, which had been uh, basically stormed by Iranians after the Iranian revolution that brought the Ayatollah Khomeini to power in 1979. <clears throat> and they had been held for a number of months, for quite a long time. Their release, it will give him a jump in the polls and will get him reelected. Thus, the October surprise, last minute. So what the Reagan-Bush team ostensibly was involved with was trying to delay the release of the hostages. And so Earl Bryan was supposedly involved as one of the intermediaries in helping to delay the release of the hostages until after the 1980 election. And Reportedly, as part of the efforts in this regard, and we know that Reagan efforts in this regard, Earl Bryan supposedly was allowed to take the Promise software and sell it. Well, that's precisely what he, the first sort of salesman around the world is selling it. Around the world, your connections. You're losing. I'm losing you. Yeah, your connections going out. Company called Hadron Technology. So this is what happened. He, according to the Brian book, the had established Iran, a had well, Israel super spy. This is company. What really happened was. According to the assassination of Robert Maxwell, uh, Israel super spy Maxwell was an agent for the Mossad. He had a relationship where he arranged for a copy of Promise to be sold to Sandia National Laboratories. 
which granted access to Israeli intelligence, giving them nuclear details. And then there was, he was work, Maxwell was working with John Tower, who died in a plane crash. So there was a lot of things going on um, with Promise. So that had security and national, you know, intel implications, a lot of things. So Promise wasn't some kind of like, you know, benign software. It was a backdoor. Things were being sold. Maxwell was involved in the sale of Promise. And I think that his daughter actually was involved in some other software as well. So she, I think she was doing something like that. Let's see. Um, yeah, my, according to my notes, but yeah, he was involved in, let's see if Albert, Albert, are you there? Yeah. Albert, are you there? Okay. You were going in and out. Yes, there, I'm so here. I just, okay. Okay. Good. Oh, no, I'm here. I'm I'm yeah. Your connection happened, isn't, but... isn't great. Your connection, your connection was going out. That's what happened. So it's probably why you didn't see it. So why don't you just take some time, wrap this up, and then, you know, if we do a part two, maybe you can get a better connection or something. Hello? Yeah, your, your connection still isn't good. So anyway, that uh, there's probably more to the story. There's definitely more to Robert Maxwell, but we'll just follow up with a part two if we can figure out more. And maybe Albert can get a better connection. So I will put Albert's con, uh, contact information in his new YouTube channel in the show notes for, for audio listeners. But uh, thank you so much for your time, Albert. Four, five, six, seven, eight, okay. I think he's gone. All right. Thank you. Bye, guys. Oh, thank you for having me.